From UA Little Rock Public Radio, this is The Art Scene. I'm Daniel Brain. Those words were first uttered by our program's founder, a beloved colleague, confidant, and resident esthete, Anne Nicholson, more than 30 years ago. And it's with the heaviest of hearts that we mark her death this past week at the age of 88. It's an understatement to say that all of us at UA Little Rock Public Radio are profoundly grateful to Anne for who she was, an unflinchingly loyal ally to the arts, a lifelong student of humanity, and a true gem in the highest sense of that word. Anne loved words, and always seemed to have the right one, but she also loved the space between them, the time it takes to consider something, to truly know it and understand it. She knew the way to a great conversation, a skill that can't be faked. In listening to Anne interview someone, you were listening to a conversation among friends. Friends who may never have spoken before, but because Anne knew their work, she knew exactly who she was meeting every time. In today's hour-long remembrance, we'll hear from a few people whose lives were touched by Anne over the years. Later in the program, we'll hear from gallerist Garbo Hearn, the Arkansas Symphony's Jeffrey Robson, and fellow radio host Jay Bradley Minnick. But first, we hear from Anne in her own words, in a 2012 StoryCorps interview with the late Ben Fry, who was then the general manager of UA Little Rock Public Radio. And here they are. Now, you were born in India, right? But only then was it India. Since then, and partition, where I was born is now Pakistan. Oh, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. In what romantically could be called the foothills of the Himalayas. Okay. So you were over in uh, what would be East Pakistan, I guess. Right? No. It's north of Pindi and the cities that are always in the news because they're the larger cities. This was a hill station to which mothers and children went when the weather got too hot on the plains. And so my mother-to-be and I were in Murray, this hill station on the road up to Kashmir. And I was born there. Okay, and your father was British military. Right. He was a doctor in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and he was stationed up there, and that's where my mother and he met. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. What was what was your mother doing there? She was the daughter of an army officer who was stationed there too. What was the uh, so so there were these military bases, I guess that. Well, they don't have bases like they do here. Yeah. They have. The barracks, the cantonments where the um, other ranks live, but the army officers, they have a club for the subalterns, the single officers, but most of the married officers, and there were quite a few of them because India was always fun for the women to go to, um, would find houses in the area. And so... Did you live with the the natives of the area? Did you live kind of among... No, you did... The... Where the English, where the British lived, would be away from where the Indians would have their houses and their compounds. But we had servants, of course. And they were Indians? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Except for our nanny and people like that. But we all had, as babies, um, all the British couples with babies would have ayers who would look after the... Ayers? A-Y-A-H. It was an Indian nurse with the white sari. Oh, okay. And... Uh, they were usually paid much more than they would have been able to get. But I don't know an awful, awful lot about that. But we always had what they called a bearer, which was like a maitre d' butler who would be the head of the household, very dignified. And he would speak excellent English. So we never had to learn an Indian 
language except that our parents insisted that we did learn a bit of Urdu to be able to speak to the servants. And what are your parents' names? Uh, my mother's name was Vai. She and my father was Ronald, but he was always called Dickie. That was his surname, and everybody called him Dickie. He was from Scotland, and he had gone... Was your mother from Scotland? No, she was born in India, too. Her father was in the Indian Army, which was a part of the British Army system in India, that there would be a senior officer on the manifest of the Indian Army. So it says IA, but he was very British. Unfor well, unfortunately for a lot of people, when you move to foreign countries, they don't realize that in, he was in the Indian Army, Indian Army that he wasn't Indian. And as he was born in Japan, it made it difficult, even so, you know, to know exactly where this particular family came from. But he was very British, went to school, as we all did, boarding school in England. But he served at one point, served at the, in the British Army in Japan, is that what you're saying? No, he was born in Japan. His father was a civilian who had been a clipper ship captain. Yeah. And had um, loved Japan and lived there. The okay. family was from Yorkshire, and they transported the cotton from the sheep and the wool from Yorkshire through, which was a big port on the North Sea, round the Cape to America, to Japan. And he more or less settled there. And uh, history relates, the family history relates that he, as an engineer, helped the Japanese establish their railway system. So this was this was your grandfather we're talking grandfather, about, right? Yes. Father, so your... this would have been my great grandfather, who was the clipper ship captain. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. And so he, his, all his family grew up in Japan. Yeah. So he ended up eventually in India. In Britain, he was sent to the army to one of the army boarding schools, a place called Wellington. And um, when he graduated, he automatically went into the army, and wherever they posted him, and they posted him to India. And then he ha raised his family there, including your Pretty mother. much, yeah. 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 And, um, of course, the World Wars, both one and two, disrupted a lot of what would have been a more or less regular transition, you know, from one place to the other. And so um, during the First World War was when my father went into the army because he was at university when it just before it started. And he had made some friends in the University of Glasgow, and they decided that they would study medicine and go as, doc as um, junior officers into the army and fight for Britain. So, uh, so they met and married. And you, how long did you... Do you have any brothers or sisters? I have two sisters. Two sisters. One was born in England and one was born in India. Okay. The middle one was born in England because the system was that you were posted to anywhere in the world, if you were with the military particularly, for about five years and then six months home leave. Home, always with a capital H, was England. Right. And the one born in England was in the leave in, 19, in the early 1930s when uh, mummy and daddy were in England. Are you... Leave. Are you the youngest or the oldest? The oldest. Or oldest, okay. And how long did you, I mean, with the exception of these leave times, how yeah. long did you live in, in, in India? Well, apart from that six months, up until my teens. Okay. So the year that we left was the year after the war, Second World War ended, 1946. We traveled back to England because up until that point, anybody 
in a far distant place was left there. They weren't transported back if they were civilians because the space was needed on the ships and all the liners were turned into troop ships. Troop ships, there were no airlines in those days. Yeah, yeah. You went to a boarding school at some point. Yes, I went to one in Kashmir that was put together for the children of those of us stranded in India during the war, which is a wonderful place. It was a horrible school, so I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, okay, let's forget about <laughs> let's forget about boarding school for a minute. What about just the memories you have of growing up in India? I remember the places so well that I could probably draw a map of each one. I loved India. And even now there are scents on the air and flowers and things that remind me of India. It's a beautiful country. And Kashmir was a marvel. There, there's poetry that is written that almost can evoke the beauty of places like that. But we lived on a houseboat, and you stayed on the houseboat while it moved from lake to lake. And the Shalimar Gardens that were built by the Mughal emperors are still there, or they were. They were beautiful. They're huge, stepwise up the side of the mountain, the foothills of the mountains. It's where I saw my first daisies. And when I visited our daughter and her husband in Spain years ago, they took me to Granada and to the Alhambra. And I went into this incredible building with a feeling of familiarity because the gardens were so similar, even though they don't have the wide open spaces of grass that they do in Kashmir. They still had the same sort of flowers and the roses and the the general ambiance was Moorish, was Indian, was Eastern. It, it was beautiful. Just a beautiful place to, mm -hmm. to grow up. What about uh, the people? Did you did you have you know did you integrate with the the local people or did you was it mostly other British, you know the other children British. that you played with or yes. friends that you had? The early stages when we were in India before the war was very much. My father was sent to a position in wherever he was sent. We went, and if there were children, then we met up with them. If there weren't, then we had ourselves and our nannies and our governesses and were homeschooled until we went to the boarding school as a result of the war. We were due to go, as all children, in, British children in India and other places, were sent home to boarding school at the age of about 10 or 12. And then they stayed there until they graduated, until the next time the parents came home on leave was the only time that you'd see them. Yeah. So was that, that the only boarding school that you went to? Was No, when we went back to England, um, I went to school in Scotland for a while, and I enjoyed that. And I shocked my mother when I told her years later that I felt if I'd stayed in Scotland, which in those days had a very high standard of education, I probably would have been an academic because I was learning to love learning. And this included Latin and biology and chemistry and things that were taught us all in the class at the same level and taught easily that you could understand what the books were saying because you had a teacher who knew them so well he could put them into language that made sense. But then we were shipped off to a boarding school because our parents left again and they went back east. And um, the English level was higher at the boarding school that mm -hmm. we went to. So I was like two years behind, mm. and there wasn't any coaching available. So you sort of muddled around. I did fine in English and history. <laughs> but beyond that, 
but math and science and mm-hmm. foreign languages. I took Latin one and three times, and French was pretty much the same. They mm-hmm. just didn't teach them in, in, in India. Those were all what you learned after you went to school. Where was it? I know you've told me before that you, you uh, went to school with Judy Dinch. That was the one in York. In England. Yes, it was a wonderful Quaker school. Judy's family is very strong Quaker. Hmm. And York is in the middle of a lot of Quaker families. And uh, there were Fry's and Roundtree's and Cadbury's, all Quaker families that made chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where my family comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, it's a school that had a very high standard of education sent its brainy ones went to Cambridge and Oxford on scholarships and did very well. And uh, others went another route and did very well. And there were people who made their name in medicine and radio and television. And uh, Judy is one of them. And there was another that was um, between us in age. Judy, Judy was my sister's friend. She was much younger mm-hmm. than I. And um, Mary Ewer was a very active actress, went to the same drama school as Judy and I and others went to. And um, she was making, she's in a film called Where Eagles Dare. Mm-hmm. I've heard of it. And The Storm on the Nile, it was a remake of a film based on a story by AEW Medicine called The Four Feathers. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Where those who didn't go to war in the First World War were given a white feather. White feather, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, there's some very good writers, both A.S. Byatt and her sister, Margaret Drabble, from the same school. So. so what was your, you know, what did you think, you know, when, as you were finishing up school, what did you think you were going to do? You know, I wanted when, to be an actress. That's why did. I went to London to drama school. And uh, then... I've never, heard, I've never heard that before. Haven't you? No, yeah. that you went to drama school. Mm-hmm. The transition from India to back to Great Britain, what was that like? Uh, you were a teenager, yes? It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was cold and gray and did nothing but rain. Uh, yeah, it was sad because we had been brought up, particularly with my father, because my mother had not grown up in India, England, so she didn't have any English memories to talk about. But Daddy, as a Scot and a Burns lover and a musician mm-hmm. and a poet, he loved poetry, he introduced me to all kinds of literature, um, Scotland was... A dream, and when we got to Scotland and stayed with his family in this dreary little seaside <laughs> town, it just was. There was no colour. All the trees had been cut down for the for you know, and all the ornamental ironwork around the houses had been taken away for the war, and everything was rationed still. And uh, it, it didn't live up to your father's stories. No. So when he finally retired, he, they were. It, back in the Far East for a while and came home in 49. I was nearly finished with school and my father retired. He'd been in the army since 1915 and this was 1952. He, 50, 51. He had answered an advertisement for um, civil defense schools that were popping up around the country because of the scare of atomic warfare. Mm -hmm. And he 
had specialized in chemical warfare between the wars when they were given the chance if they wanted to stay in the army to go into something that might put them into another track for promotion and things like that. And his two mates who had persuaded him to go into the army at university opted for surgery. And as you may not know, but it's very possible that you do, in medicine, the surgeons go up the ladder more quickly than the internists and um, general practice, make more money and um, get the regimental improvements, as you might say. So they started the Second World War. They were both generals when Daddy was still a major. Mm. But Daddy had done this chemical warfare in the interim in the 20s, obviously because of his experience in the First World War. And he was, for one thing, he was at Gallipoli, which was uh, something he never talked about. Mm. I only found this out through my sister who had talked to the mother when they had times together, the one who stayed in England. And um, obviously had been at hospitals either back of the front or back in England when these um, gassed soldiers were coming. And he realized that this was the new face of warfare, so he studied it. So he got a job straight away at one of these civil defense schools, and it was in Scotland, in one of the most beautiful parts of Scotland, in Perthshire, just at the foot of the Tay, of Loch Tay, when the River Tay comes out of the loch and trundles down the hill. And it's scenery to die for. It's beautiful. And we had a lovely little cottage that was about 250 years old, I suppose. And it was right in the middle of um, Stevenson country, kidnapped, mentioned some of the places, and several of the romantic Scottish writers have put their stories in that same area because a lot of the, the battles and the fortunes of the Second Rising, the... Bonnie Prince Charlie Rebellion also took part in that part of Scotland. Things you'd read about your whole life. Oh, yes. And there are lots of things there that are still there that you can trace back. In fact, there's a yew tree in a small village called Fortingall that they've traced back, they thought, about 2,000 years. There's a, a legend that Pontius Pilate was born in this little town mm. because the Romans made their way up yeah. the river because it was a tidal river and the encampments and things that are being discovered. And they've discovered it's a lot older than that. It's between five and 10,000 years old, that Luchi. You're listening to The Art Scene from UA Little Rock Public Radio. I'm Daniel Breen. If you're just joining us, we're remembering Ann Nicholson, the longtime host of this program and a voice known to all in central Arkansas. Ann died this past weekend at the age of 88. Here she is speaking with late UA Little Rock Public Radio General Manager Ben Fry in 2012. Now, uh, I got a little lost here when you, uh, when your father retired uh, and, and went to the Civil Defense School uh, as an instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, where, how old were you at that point? I was just finished school. Okay. And then, and so at that point, you were, when that was going on, you were then going to London to go yes, to Yes, I had a, a year at home. And went to London the next year after we they'd moved up and settled in um, Scotland. And then when he retired from the Civil Defense School, they built a house in the valley. And um, it incorporated, my, my, my mother more or less designed it, I think, because it incorporated all the wonderful things she'd liked in all the houses that she'd ever lived <laughs> in. And... Uh, 
it got a bit too much for them, so they had to sell mm. and move. And then Daddy died, and um, it was sad when we emigrated that when we said goodbye at like two o'clock in the morning on the tarmac at Prestwick Airport, that that was the last time one would see him. Oh. Mm. So where does David come into all this? When I was in London as a student. So you met him while you yeah. were going to, to drama school? I No, I'd dropped the drama school and oh. was now studying voice. I wanted to be a singer. Okay. And who, who is David? David's my husband. Her husband. Sorry. <laughs> yes, he was a doctor in uh, practice in London. He'd been trained at one of the big teaching hospitals in London through the war. And then he'd gone into private practice. And he was out one evening, and I met him with a date. I was on a date, and it was one of these funny little restaurants that one night, in the evenings, it was run as a Rus Russian bistro. It was called Luba's Bistro. And in the lunchtime, it was a French restaurant, and they served all night's French food. And right next door to it was a very nice pub called the Admiral Codrington. And if you wanted any wine with your meal, you had to go next door to Admiral <laughs> Codrington and get a bottle of wine. <laughs> but nobody thought any too much about yeah, it. Yeah, that is just a common yes, thing. You didn't have to put it in a brown bag or take it. <laughs> <laughs> now he was he was a bit older than you, right? Yes, he was. Um, let me see now. Yes, he was born in the twenties. Hmm. Okay. He had his ninetieth birthday last year. Did you? How soon after you met David did did you guys decide to get married? Well, did you we date for a long time. Or? No, we met on bank holiday weekend in nineteen fifty four, which was the first Monday in August. And he proposed a couple of weeks later, and we got married uh, that December. <laughs> so it was a whirlwind romance. Sort of. <laughs> so uh, how long were you and David in England? Not long. We were long enough to have a baby. We left in 50, January 58. David went over. He'd... Uh, Without I'd telling me the rat, that we were <laughs> looking at transferring our allegiance because he wanted to practice medicine as he had trained to do. When they brought in the National Health, a lot of these doctors were made clerks. They were sort of had to fill out lots and lots and lots of notes and send their patients to somebody else, which didn't sit well with him. So we went to Saskatchewan. So he, so that he kind of was. Uh, he was looking in the escaping pages. the health national health system. Yes, part of the what they call the brain drain. Huh. Yes. And so we left, went to the prairies because in those days, parts of Canada had what they called reciprocity with English degrees. So he didn't have to sit any exam to practice in Saskatchewan. But he wanted to move somewhere a little closer to civilization. And so he took his Canadian boards in Manitoba the year after we moved there, and then we moved down to Ontario. To okay. Well, see, I had always thought that you, you know, were over in that part of Canada, and when you said Saskatchewan, that kind of surprised yes. me, because <laughs> I was going, and that, at that point in time, I would think Saskatchewan was a pretty wild place. Pretty... No, not really. It was just very flat, and uh, the little town we were in was called a city, and I couldn't understand it, because in, in England, you're not a city unless it's a cathedral. <laughs> That's what gives it the name, right. the title. And this was a city of 5,000 people. And I remember asking somebody what that meant. And it said, he, she said, it's got 5,000 people. But, but you weren't there very long in Cisco. We were there from 
I joined David in March, and we left a year the following July. Okay. Because Neo, our child, had his second birthday in Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> we're on our way. When to you're way to, <laughs> to uh, Ontario. Yes, we're right. going, we went to the Lakehead, which is now called Thunder Bay. Yeah. Yeah. In those days, it was Twin Cities, Fort William and Port Arthur, because they had two railway lines, the, Port, the Canadian Pacific and the Canadian National. And they built their own hotels, and they had their own railway lines, and they had their own routes. So comparing, you know, grew up in India, lived in Scotland, lived in England, now you're in Canada. What, you know, how did, how did all this compare for you? I mean, did it, did, were you happy in Canada? No. But well, if it hadn't been for the library, I think I'd have gone mad. Well. But small as the town was, it had a wonderful library. And I would come home armed with books and just bury myself in romances that <laughs> took me away from reality. <laughs> so what did you not like about Canada? Well, there was nothing to do. Just kind of isolated? Yeah. And, and the only other people who really did much in the way of entertaining were the other Brits who were also immigrants and would have little dinner parties and things. Mm -hmm. But the only city that had anything was Saskatoon, which was 100 miles south. And we'd occasionally go there for community concerts and things like that, but we weren't there all that long. Fort William had not much more than that. And then Oakville, outside Toronto, Yes, you could go into Toronto. It was a quiet town. It didn't have many restaurants where you could get wine with your meals. <laughs> now, of course, it's just a thriving metropolis. Right, right. It's a lovely city because my sister and her husband live there, and I've visited them a number of times. But we made some very good Canadian, very good friends. One particular Canadian, French-Canadian family we still stay in touch with, and others that are real friends that you keep right. the links going all the time. And then your children, you just, everywhere you go, you make friends with people mm -hmm. who have children the same age. And uh, that was our situation, certainly, until we came to Little Rock. How long did it take, uh, how long were you there in Canada? About four years. Okay. And then and then you... Then came you... to, went to Texas. Texas. Sweet. Again, such a, I mean, you know, this is why this is why I wanted to try to go through all this. I mean, you've just had these huge switches from one place to another. Yeah. I mean, about the only thing that's been consistent is the English language, you yes. know, which you've more or less been able to maintain right. in the places right. that you've lived. Well, Texas was a revelation because <laughs> it was not what I was expecting. What were you expecting? We went to Tyler, uh -huh. Texas, which is lovely. It's got tall trees and red soil. And one of the places we were in in India had red soil. Mm -hmm. And this suddenly, it smelt like India. And the mimosa trees looked like the trees that I grew up with in India. So there was a feeling almost of recognition. So, so moving to Texas as compared to Canada was kind of a... Yeah. It ended up being a relief. Well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> but I took a piano lessons at Tyler Junior College. <laughs> and... and uh, all the little girls in Tyler wanted to be Apache Bells. Apache Bells. Apache Bells. Apache Bells. <laughs> and <What's>, what is that? <laughs> it's the uh, name of the 
I guess you call it. Indian princesses, I guess, right? But the Tyler Junior College had cheerleaders for their football team. And they were called the Apache Bells. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then we moved to Dallas, and the children went to good schools, and I went to university to start my degree and got my music degrees. What what inspired that? I mean, you know, after it had been many years, you know, since you'd been in school. The piano teacher that I went to in Tyler. And he said, why don't you? Because he realized that I wasn't interested in going to church or joining bridge clubs and things mm-hmm. like that. And he said, you know, so I explored it and went to somebody to talk to at SMU and um, got some very good advice that I would never have gotten in a similar situation in England. It was very generous and kind and allowed me to take the GED. And he came out after I'd taken it. He said, I think you wrote this paper. <laughs> <coughs> Which was... Not math, <laughs> English <laughs> <Yeah>. and history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my years at SMU. It was great fun. I was among the vanguard of older women, right. older students going back. So I was a mature student when all these fresh 17, 18-year-olds were freshmen as well. Not an uncommon thing now, but probably was at that time. Yes, and the faculty didn't really know how to take me. <laughs> Because they almost expected me to put them down, I think. But mm-hmm. when they realized I knew nothing, I was learning from the ground up. And they taught me, and it was exciting yeah. to be able to do what I needed to do. It was the going back to your school in Scotland that you loved so much. Yes, and, you know, sort of. And I was of an age when I really wanted to learn. And I actually learned to pass the SAT, even the math I passed. Because I had this wonderful teacher in uh, Dallas College who... Um, taught algebra that made it understandable. Now, if I'd had somebody like that when I was 14, 15, I probably could have kept it. But, you know, I did it for the purpose I had it, and I've forgotten it all since. <laughs> and then how long were you in Texas? Uh, ten years. Ten years. Yes, and then we moved to Kentucky. Okay, and how long were you in Kentucky? Three years. Three years. And then we went to Ohio. Ohio. How long there? (laughs) Three years. Three years. And then down here. Anything spectacular in Kentucky or Ohio? Oh, lovely. I loved Kentucky. It's a a life apart, really. We had a lovely house in a lovely part of Lexington, and the children seemed to be settling in. Our daughter, of course, went off to school because she wanted to do ballet, and there was nothing Mm -hmm. in the area, so she went to school in Washington for a year. And then when we moved to Dayton, there was a very good ballet company there. And she danced with them for a while, but then she wanted something a bit more um, intensive. So Mm -hmm. she finished her high school in New York. Mm. What are your children's names? Oh, our son is called Neil, and it's spelled N-I-A-L-L, which is pronounced Niall over here. So he calls it Niall now because he got tired of telling (laughs) Telling people. And our daughter is Dido. And neither of them have a second name. Really? Yeah. Why was that? Well, we couldn't figure out what to call them. <laughs> what goes with and We figured that if they had a gap there, then they had the option of choosing their own right. name. They could come up with yes. something later on. I, we're, getting, we're getting close to the end, but okay. I, we've got... And I haven't asked you any questions. Right, and you're not going to, obviously. <laughs> but but uh, the... Uh, um, so we need, to, we need to talk about Little Rock. And, I, you know, after hearing all the places you lived, Little Rock must not have been as big of a you know, change as I kind of always think it when people not move to really. Arkansas, I always think it's a huge cultural change, but not if you've lived in Texas. And No, we got adapted to the uh, American way of life. <sighs> and I was telling my 
friends that I was not frightened when Neil went to university over here because I'd been on a university campus myself. Right. And it was familiar, so it didn't worry me as much as it seemed to people whose children were suddenly landed in an American campus. But um, it was here, I just, because Dido was still in training, dancing, wanted to stay close. She was in England and a long way away. I got very much involved with Ballet Arkansas mm -hmm. here, and uh, then from that with other arts events and uh, with the radio, when it was just KLRE over in Scott Hamilton Drive. Right, Metropolitan. Mm -hmm. uh, so how long have you been here in We came Arkansas? here in 78, so that's 30, how many years? <laughs> Whatever. We'll, turn, we'll turn to her to do the math, 30, 34 or something, something like that. that. Yes. Which is the longest you've ever lived anywhere. Anywhere, right. yes. <laughs> Indeed. Are you happy to be here? Oh, yes. We've got some very good friends. Yeah. And I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now, which I love so much, if I were anywhere else now. Because mm -hmm. I sort of eased into it. You know, it wasn't something that I went looking for, but uh, it's been great for well, me. Well, I know the, the radio thing was just, uh, it seemed, when I look back on it, it seems like it was almost by accident yeah. that it occurred. And I was more or less given the total freedom to make of it what I could. Right. And uh, because you were uh, originally there was the, well, I think maybe it was just you, you did a couple of interviews and then got, you suggested the Forgotten Oscar series or how did yeah. it, is that how it worked out? Well, no, I was doing the Sampling the Arts, remember? No, I don't remember that one. That was the one like Isabel Stodler's um, oh, okay. speaking volumes and things and I did it for all the arts. For a similar, you know, 90 seconds and, and couple And of how did that come about? How did you end up doing I that? I wanted to use my degrees because I've been working on my master's mm -hmm. in musicology and uh, John Bortel, no, Dick Siebert, the medical music school, he was the chairman of music at UALR, mm -hmm. suggested I see if somebody would like me if I sort of took a class, but I had to sort of create my own environment and nobody signed up. So then he said, well, go to the radio station and see if they'd like to use you. So John said, fine, yes, I'd love to do something like this. And he more or less drew the idea of the sampling, and then when KLRE moved on campus with KUAR, the um, dean at that time was Lloyd Benjamin, and he said he wanted a program at a regular time each week on the arts in Arkansas, mm -hmm. and he wanted me to do it. Yes. So that's how it And thus his history is born. <laughs> <laughs> or Let's whatever. See. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, I think we determined the art scene is... It, we, you had your 25th anniversary a couple of, a few years ago. 1985, so. we started. Yeah, so October or something. So yeah, it's we're we're way beyond that. So um, have you have you you know what what would you say uh, summarizing your experience with doing the art scene for the, all these years? Well, I look back and we've got the same format, but I've got more ambitious with the people that I have and the way that I try to put the program together to appeal to the whole state rather than just the immediate um, central Arkansas, which doesn't go as far as I'd like it to, but it seems to reach people because this is a state that's very much um, a family. There are people who live here or who pass through to somewhere else if they hear something that I've got on the program. They seem to be able to take interest in it and take mm -hmm. advantage of it. And uh, it's been wonderful. I've met some marvelous people. I was going to say, you've gotten to talk to just some amazing people yeah. over the years. Yeah. You know? 
What what fun. would be your highlights of folks that you've gotten to gotten to talk? I with? don't know. They I've been asked that before, and I've had so many. When you realize that once a week, two interviews each week for that many years, some repeats, but at a different level. You know, I've done regular interviews with people from the symphony and the rep and the mm-hmm. runs of past seasons, etc. But um, they're all interesting. Visiting artists yes. and authors. Yes. And, and phone interviews with the great and the good. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very gratifying to be able to do that, you know, to be hugged by James L. Jones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a guy that can hug, I bet. <laughs> yes, because he'd done an interview to when David Itkin had those um, Black History Month right. concerts. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, that other chap did things, he was a cop on television with, um, what's his name, who was um, the Scot who died for Scotland, what was his name? The actor, who was always in trouble with the law because he drinks too much. Oh, Mel Gibson. (laughs) (laughs) The black black guy who played... Oh, uh, Danny Glover. Yes, he came here We had to go to Mel Gibson to get to (laughs) Danny Glover, but yeah, Danny Glover, that's right, I remember, yes. And it's, it's, I mean, these are people that I'd never get to talk to otherwise, that I can enjoy having some conversation. And with James L. Jones, we talked about the South African um, playwright that he had done such good work with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we weren't talking about his own career or what might have been traditional questions. You mm-hmm. know. But uh, it's been fun. <laughs> speaking with her longtime boss, the late Ben Fry. Now we hear from one of Anne's greatest friends here in Little Rock, Garbo Hearn. As the owner of Hearn Fine Art and Pyramid Art Books and Custom Framing, Hearn knew Anne for years, often coordinating interviews with artists. I spoke with Hearn this past week. What was your first impression of Anne Nicholson when you first met her? I was kind of taken aback because she would always come and ask you the most interesting questions and she was very insightful and she made you look at things in a different way so I was you know I look forward to seeing her and I always um, wanted her viewpoint because she could look at a read a book or look at an image and come up with something totally unusual but very insightful so I was I was really impressed with her wealth of knowledge and her interest in the arts and all the many disciplines that she um, was able to conquer, if you will. Yeah, and that, that's one of the things that struck me most was, um, and and really did, like you said, conquer a lot of a lot of different mm-hmm. disciplines. It was it was it seemed that her breadth of knowledge, but also her breadth of curiosity, was sort of boundless. Right. right. She was always she she was um, she had a thirst for learning and meeting new people and unusual people there was i don't think she met a stranger i mean because all of the the people that she interviewed that i've shared with her they always left the room saying that was the most interesting interview i've ever done because she asked me questions and i answered and found out things about myself that i didn't even know so she brought that out in people 
Sure, I guess. I mean, this is probably a, a question that I have really. I wish I could ask her, but what do you attribute that to? I mean, what what is that secret to just maintaining that that both that curiosity and just that 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 unique outlook? Well, you know, Anne didn't have any fear. I mean, she lived a fearless life. She she went after whatever she wanted. If she was going to do something, she was going to get it done. She was not going to, you know, go around any corners. She went straight through and got it done the correct way. That was just her work ethic, I think. Um, and she was she was thirsty for in, information and knowledge. But the arts were definitely her focus. Yes, absolutely. And I, I am just curious about your perspective because you were there for when Anne first came to the, to Arkansas. What, what do you think her presence here in the arts community and what she um, what she did on on the radio every week with her show? What, what do you think that did for the larger arts community in Little Rock and just for the uh, the general listening public? I well, guess? the general lis- listening public looked forward to art scene because you knew that she was going to bring uh, a person or, or an event or an, an audience to the table to be informed. So I think that her persona, you know, she had her own space, she had her own show, and she she interviewed who she wanted to interview. She asked her own questions. So I, I trusted that she was always going to do the right thing and she was going to take care of the artist. So I think that she had a profound love of the arts and the many disciplines, and she spread herself uh, very thin. I mean, if you went to her home, the many books that she had, the music that she uh, collected, I mean, she was truly an arts advocate. That was Garbo Hearn speaking about the art scene's founder, Ann Nicholson, who died last week at age 88. Now we hear from Jeffrey Robson, Arkansas Symphony Orchestra associate conductor, on how Ann impacted his life in just a few short years. I met Anne, she was one of the very first people I met when I moved to Little Rock to start working for the symphony, originally as associate conductor and violinist. And, um, you know, I I think it was around my third day in Little Rock in the fall of 2008 when we met at the station and, and I learned about her program and, you know, and we've been friends and colleagues and have uh, talked regularly ever since then. She was just a wealth of knowledge um, about the arts community here, the history of it, and and also, you know, beyond here, um, nationally and internationally. I mean, she was she was someone who kept track of what was going on, and she had great taste, and she knew what was good, and uh, you know, conversation with her could really keep you focused on remaining inspired and and continuing to 
hone your own craft. And, and, you know, I mean, I think that something that everyone in the arts community here has in common is everyone's own unique relationship with, with Ann Nicholson. And she maintained all of those relationships fastidiously and, and was just an incredible resource to the community. You know, we're going to miss her terribly. And I think that the arts community here will you know, live on forever with her in our and its memory as, as, as incredibly important player in its evolution and um, a great spirit and, and just someone you knew you would always have an interesting, insightful, and charming conversation with. Symphony's Jeffrey Robson speaking about late art scene host Ann Nicholson, who died this past week at 88. Finally today, we hear from Jay Bradley Minnick, host and executive producer of Arts and Letters Radio, who spoke about his former co-worker with KYR's Michael Hiblin. such a a force. I was most impressed with her uh, tenacity and perseverance. Uh, She, uh, every week, uh, almost every day, would come into the studio, and we both shared a studio in the back, and she would work tirelessly on each episode um, for each week. And I was also really taken by her breadth of knowledge with culture and the arts, as well as uh, her national standing. I mean, she had just amazingly well-known artists, writers, painters, musicians on her show. Uh, Everyone from uh, James Earl Jones to Nikki Giovanni, the poet, from Hillary Clinton to uh, Betty Bumpers. So um, there was a wide breadth and she she really, I think, um, captured and archived the culture in Arkansas. 
with the very proper British accent. Uh, she really uh, stuck out on the air. And if you weren't paying close attention, it was easy to think this was uh, a national host from uh, NPR. Yeah, she had such a distinctive voice and, and an interesting way of asking questions. I, I really studied early on the way she, she asked questions. And one thing that she did that was just a really nice way to think about helping her guests find their way into an interview was she'd tell little stories or little bits about herself uh, and she'd intersperse them into the videos. It wasn't just a, a plain video. What, what was the book that, or a plain interview? What was the book that you wrote? Uh, it was it was a little bit about her and her personality in relation to what she thought about that that book or that piece of music or that piece of art. The other thing that really stands out to me and it's interesting, I, I got to talk to her so much. Um, one of the things that we had in common was how much she she loved words. She loved to read, and she talks often about um, reading and language. And it's so clear in, in her interviews and, and her knowledge about language. Uh, and she just brings that out in her guests and, and through her own words. Finally, Brad, what do you think uh, her legacy uh, will be to the arts community or, for that matter, the radio stations? Well, well both. Uh, so two things, Michael, I think. Um, first, she's been... She had been doing shows since 1985, and we were trying to figure out a little bit uh, how many shows she had done. But if you can imagine just doing the math, uh, she did four shows um, a month uh, over nine-month stretches from 1985 on. And she also worked a lot in the summer. Um, she would create uh, a variety of shows. She'd often go to, to London. Uh, and spend time there, but she would she would create these shows uh, in the summer so that she could play them over the summer. And often there were more than one guest on her show. There were there were there were many. So I think uh, just the sheer number of shows that she's done has just been amazing for me personally. And she was able to interview us early on. She was so enthusiastic about um, the work that other people um, were doing, and I'm just you know so saddened. Um, that we've lost just a treasure, I think, in, in Arkansas. Someone who's captured the arts, but beyond that for me, she just was quite a lady. And, um, and uh, I just, I have no words for, for, for how sad I am. Yeah, and a tiny woman uh, physically, and, but, and in but stature, of course. <laughs> but a huge force. What a personality when she uh, walked into the room. And uh, even as her health declined over the years, she still uh, did whatever she had to to get in the building, to be up here, and to get that show together. You know, that's so well said. I'll tell you, I, I, I wrote to her, her daughter and I said, whenever I even consider complaining about anything, I think of Anne and how she would get over here, drive the car, walk through this place. And it was tough for her toward the end just to even walk and get into this studio, write out all of her scripts and prepare for her show. And the love that she had for that show um, was, it was, it was something. So yeah, the, the force that she was will surely be missed. 
That was Jay Bradley Minnick, host of Arts and Letters, remembering his colleague Ann Nicholson, who made this show possible more than 30 years ago and died this past week at age 88. From all of us at KYR and KLRE, we thank you for listening over the years. It was you that Anne sought to help, to teach, and to talk to every week, and it's what she did best and what kept her going. We'll miss you, Anne, and we love you. I didn't honestly know where to start for this interview, except <laughs> to start at the beginning. All right. Welcome to the art scene, presented each week by UALR Public Radio. I'm Anne Nicholson. Lawrence Hamilton really needs no introduction. Nikki Giovanni, a poet for all ages, is my guest. Several years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing Norris Church Mailer, the wife of the famous author Norman Mailer. Zuel Bailey first came to Arkansas in 1991, a young cellist who had just won the National Federation of Music Club's Young Artist Award in strings. where radio is so fabulous because you can't see the expressions on your faces. The voice and what that voice is telling us becomes all important and one learns more that way. But this is something that you've obviously had absolutely no hesitation is to accept the challenge of leadership, of putting pen to paper and saying the things that so many of us say to friends but don't dare say out loud or haven't got the courage or the words to make it matter? Well, you know, I, I sincerely think that 90% of the time nobody's paying attention anyway. So you may as well say what you believe and you may as well tell the truth as you understand it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you must have a sense subconsciously that there you are as a voice, you are channeling ideas, you're helping people understand subjects. When you go on the air discussing what's worrying all of us, you have an instinct to ask the right questions and to listen to the answers. And this is something that we don't hear very often. I know that that's what people say. It, uh, it's just what I do. Well, when the first time I met you, we were talking about your beginnings in the small town you came from and how you went back and forth and never really lost your ties with Arkansas. No, I, 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 I try to stay just as my parents taught me to be, mm-hmm. to love, to care, to work hard, and uh, to just love life. Well, I think the best thing to do as, as we are educating, as mm-hmm. we are convincing uh, the educators in this country that we have to educate young people to think, act, uh, globally, you know, because whatever happens here today happens in the rest of the world today. 
back. I was talking to a friend of mine about this whole situation about my life and Norman and you know what a crazy life it had been and I said well I bought a ticket to the circus I don't know why I was surprised to see elephants I hadn't really thought about doing this before I did it and just stepping in that way was the most marvelous introduction I could possibly have had then from up above and far away down the tunnel they had so lately traveled was borne to their ears in a faint musical hum the sound of distant bells ringing a joyous and clangorous peal and so we leave the world of the willows and i hope you have enjoyed this brief glimpse into the adventurous lives of badger ratty the mole and above all toad And that concludes the program for this week. Please join us next weekend at the same time. I'm Ann Nicholson. Thank you for listening. The Art Scene is a presentation of UA Little Rock Public Radio.